episode of uh, Thinking Aloud About Film. Uh, we're looking at the cinema of Hu Xiaoshen. Uh, and today we're looking at Daughter of the Nile. And I'm very curious to see what you thought of it, Richard. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was an odd film. In, it was an odd, odd kind of combination of his first three films and his subsequent films, I, I, I thought. So um, it seemed to be, a, as far as I can see, it was a deliberate attempt to try and make a more commercial film starring a pop star after he apparently the, the previous three films were commercially unsuccessful in in taiwan and uh, this was an attempt to i guess try and do something more commercial and I'm, I'm not sure it wasn't that successful so <laughs> commercially i i can really understand why it wasn't successful uh i've now seen it twice i just finished seeing it again so it's all very fresh in my mind uh and i was riveted both times i wasn't bored uh um but i can't say i enjoyed it right like uh i the first time i saw it i made the mistake of actually reading on the film uh beforehand and actually all it did was confuse me you know i i was looking at the film i was saying i don't understand who this character is i don't understand where's the mother you know is that uh, older girl coming out of the bedroom as another sister, right? You know, so so actually it was only today when I just ignored everything and saw it again in its own terms that um, at least those familial relationships uh, became clear. So do you want to tell the overall narrative? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go. It, it was, I mean, I actually think the narrative is quite simple, but I think I agree when you read some reviews of it, it makes it sound more complicated than it is. But it, it's, a, so it's a family drama set in present day Taipei or mid 80s present day Taipei um, of the family. The mother has died and the older brother has died before the start of the film. So there's a there's an older sister who is the, the sort of lead character. Uh, she has a, an, an older brother. The father is largely absent. There's a younger sister who's very young, sort of nine or ten years old, and really it's just this family trying to hold together. The brother is involved in petty crime and then gets involved in more serious crime. The the sister, older sister, is kind of working in KFC and hanging out with her friends and pining out after one of the brother's friends, and then you know things erupt into violence and 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 it, it ends. I mean that that's the that's the outline of the story, yes. really. Yes. It's, a, it's a very, it's a very simple story, uh, and I do think that uh, you know the reviews I read made it much more complicated than it is, and actually get in the way of a real understanding and feel for the film. Yeah, because you know through this very simple structure, the film asks a lot of questions or, or it raises a lot of questions, right? Um, you know, so why is the father living somewhere else? But why is the grandfather and the aunts living nearby? So, you know, kind of, yeah, I mean, those are all questions that overhang the thing, that it's a family that's fractured, you know, that is generationally at odds. So, you know, the grandfather is berating the father for always arguing with the son and, and trying to beat him, in fact, right? So... And yet, there's something that holds them all together. So, the older brother is a thief, you know, but he's always bringing presents to the family. <laughs> he's stealing, you know, he's th he's stealing yes, to please, yeah. as well as kind of 
seeing it as his job and his vocation, right? Uh, there's interesting analogies because, you know, a cop and a criminal in many ways are not too distant and the father's a cop and the son is a criminal, you know, and that explains why they're always at odds, but it also, they might be at odds because they might have more in common than they like to acknowledge. Yeah, so the film is very rich through its simplicity. Yeah, and <laughs> much like the previous three films, you'll, you know, firstly, there's a lot of stuff you're not shown. So, I mean, there, there are acts of violence that happen largely off screen and, and you, you just overhear bits of conversation or perhaps you overhear something on the radio about it. Um, you're not really told what's happened to the to the mother and to the older brother. You're not told the reason. Yeah, the, the, at one point, the, you know, one of the brother's friend goes off to America and comes back and you're not, this is not really explained and you don't really see it. You have to kind of piece together the narrative in the same way you do with the with the previous three films. And again, I think I enjoyed it more you know, you're watching it and you're trying to work out what's going on. And when it, after the film's finished, it kind of does sort of settle and, 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 and make sense, I think. Yes, I think it does. And I think it also reverberates. So, you know, I mean, you do get a sense of how ugly Tape is in this film, right? Because, you know, in previous films, um, you know, the landscape has been so beautiful, or the villages or creeks or... Yeah, you know, uh, you you get um, you get a feeling that Taiwan is geographically very beautiful in terms of landscape and so on, but Taipei in this film at least seems a really ugly city. All these blocks of flats, but not very big, rather squat, you know, with like carriageways and you know, uh, I mean, even the nightlife doesn't seem very glamorous, right? Like, you know, you often the nightlife consists of you know, a shot from of a KFC, you know, from quite a distance with just a carriageway going through in some bright lights. I mean, it's it's almost a picture of urban yeah, alienation. You see, you see a lot of KFC yeah. to the extent it felt like it was, you know, brought to you in association with Colonel Sanders because she works in KFC and they have the uniforms and I mean, the logos all over the place. That was quite interesting. Yes. Um, and I mean, it must resonate with some sense of American imperialism and com well, commercialism. Yeah, because it, it's interesting that it's an American brand that that that, that she's working in and, and, and that's shown so prominently. But there is also a thing in, you know, about this whole thing about KFC and Christmas, uh, Christmas in Japan. Uh, Jap Japan is not a Christian country. People don't celebrate Christmas. But in the I think in the 60s or 70s, um, the first KFC shop opened in Tokyo and they had this marketing idea to sort of sell big buckets of chicken, a party bucket of chicken at Christmas. And this kind of evolved into this whole thing in Japan that KFC is what you have at Christmas. You have a big party bucket with wine and everything. So it's kind of, so, and, and I have no idea whether, whether there's a similar thing in, in Taiwan, but it does, I think the thing is it does signify something slightly different than it would in, in the UK or America. Well, I think the Americanness of the brand has to mean something because um, for two other reasons. Uh, her brother's best friend, who she has a crush on, goes off to America with another woman and then comes back, but he needs a loan from her brother in order to come back. Presumably, the girl he left with is left behind, right? And he comes back very thin. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the sense of failure, of defeatism, of it not being what it seems, right? Um, and the other thing that might be of interest is the manga, the Japanese manga, 
that the heroine reads, Daughter of the Nile, you know, which is about a minute, an American girl, yeah, who is sent back in time, you know, and falls in love with the pharaoh and is very, very lonely, though very much in love, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and that sense of being out of place, yeah, and yeah, and I suppose seeking love and you know being alienated is something that also pervades the the film. Yeah, it's one of those films that the more you think about it, the richer it becomes. Um, since you mentioned last time this sense that the takes are not only long, but actually that different scenes are, are shot from the same position, yeah, I kept my eye on it, and of course you notice it, yeah. So yeah, because the, the the house, for instance, is all, always shot. There are the same few shots of the house that you always yeah. see. But um, it's not always. That's what I was going to get at. So, so you see that different scenes are shot from uh, exactly the same position. Yeah, and you know, so so you see the same doorways, the same frames, the frames within frames. You know, and actually, it's it's a marvel because it gives you depth, right? But 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 you can also come in from the sides, right? So it offers like maximum mobility for a scene to take yeah, place. Yeah, because you in that, that that one shot, you've got, because the shot is taken from one room that they're not in, and you, you see the kitchen where they're eating, and then through the kitchen, you can see into the bathroom. Yeah. And you... And then you can you can also see outside, right. and then to the to the left hand side is the is the girl's that's bedroom. Right. But there's also this this the the only thing in the room you're actually in is this fish tank, because half of the screen is almost is is this fish tank that's always in yeah. Front. But what I was going to say is that that's not quite right because you often have the camera move in closer so that you don't see the doorway, or the camera further away so that you see a sofa in front of the fish tank, right? Like. I think there are like really fascinating slight variations that create a sense of a world, yeah, and not just of a, of a space. So there are fixed recurring shots, but there are also shots of the same space that are not fixed, that come from a different perspective. And I think that is also what makes the film so rich and interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because the other thing I noticed is there's so little camera movements. Um, he, I, I, you know, most of the time the camera's static, people moving within that shot. Um, there were a few shots where he, where it's a kind of moving shot from a car. There's only I, I only noticed like two or three shots where the camera actually pans across people, um, and it's actually quite shocking when it does. And there's one bit where yeah, there's kind of a fight scene where where suddenly the camera moves violently, and that's the only time in the film. I find the film fascinating because it actually. All the important things really do happen off screen. I mean, you know, you do see the brother being his his head getting smashed in slow motion, but in a very brief moment. Um, but actually, some of the other things, like you're not even clear. So you get a feeling that he's going out with some, you know, mafia boss's girlfriend, you know, because there's a very beautiful girl who hangs next to him. But you're not told who she is, what she does, who, why. Yeah, I mean, all of that is left, you know, for you to conjecture, really. Um, the the person who is the main character, uh, the, the young girl, um, you know, who's looking after the family and working at KFC. Do we know who the actress is that plays her? She, she's, I think she's called Lin Yang. She's a, a Taiwanese pop star. You have no idea... 
what her wishes are, what her desires are. I mean, you know, you get the sense that she's going to night school, she's looking after her family, she's working at KFC, she's got a crush on this boy, you know, but her living through the manga <laughs> and the romantic music she she listens to speaks of another longing that is never articulated by her in the film. Because he's clearly deliberately chosen to cast a, a, you know, a pop star in this film rather than a kind of unknown act, actor or whatever. Um, so it's, it's kind of similar casting, I guess, to, you know, using Kenny B or Fong Fei Fei. I mean, I, I don't know how well known Ling Yang was as a singer, um, but essentially he's cast this pop star and you're not really let into what she's feeling. And there is a the, the Daughter of the Nile song that's played a few times during the film, as I understand it, is is her singing although you, you know she doesn't she doesn't sing in the film it's her she's on the soundtrack so it's like those scenes in you know in the in the first three films in the musicals about halfway through there'd be a there'd be a song like the coca-cola song in um uh green green grass a little kind of montage of quirky things going on this one about halfway through you you get the song and the camera shows her sort of sitting on the sofa with a warm and listening to it looking kind of bored yeah. and it's so it's so sort of a, it's, it's kind of um using that format of this kind of pop star led film but in a kind of deliberately contrary way yes. i think uh in a, in a quite an artsy an art cinema way right where not everything is articulated and some things remain mysterious you know and unknown maybe unknowable uh in fact so I want to talk a little bit about the geography of the film because it has very few spaces, yeah? It has the classroom, the KFC, the kitchen, the bedroom and the bathroom, I, the flat. Then it has some two nightclub scenes, one a big dance disco and the other one, I forget what it's called, but it's the nightclub that the brother owns, the cafe that the brother owns. Um, and... You know, then you see some street scenes and, and yeah, and the classroom. That's and the beach, right? I think that's it. Yeah. So it's very minimal locations through which to establish a world in which ideas of a family, of generations, of criminality, of the city, yeah, urban alienation and of manga and consumer culture, you know, and this idea that Taipei is somehow a Babylon. I mean, those are all ideas in the film, right? You know, there's so few locations, and yet the themes are kind of, you know, almost like archetypal and rich, yeah? You're only seeing the information he's choosing to give you, you know, and you have to piece things together through what you're, you're being shown and what's off screen. And he often shows it to you obliquely. Um, I do think that modernity and consumer culture is a recurring theme, right? It begins with the brother having stolen a Walkman for her, right? Uh, and then he's got a beeper, <laughs> right? You know, which in 1980s is the latest thing. Late 80s, the only people with beepers were, you know, doctors and exactly. drug dealers. So, <laughs> you know. uh, and also that white Jeep, yeah, which is a, re a real status symbol. Uh, so, whereas what would they live in a really humble flat? Yeah, I mean, I think even by Taipei standards, it must have been a very humble flat, right? Yeah, there's kind of a disjunction there between 
you know, the aspirations or the promise of a culture and working at KFC and, you know, and you also get the sense that, you know, she to a large extent must be supporting the family, right? Because, you know, the father is living elsewhere and presumably has his expenses, you know, uh, the brother is bringing in what he steals, but it's not necessarily money, <laughs> right? Yeah. So this the, the the grandfather occasionally wins something on the lottery. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So so, uh, you know, you don't get the sense that they are, you know, hungry or anything, but you do get the sense that they are living very low down the economic scale, uh, and yet having access aspirations. In fact, you know, to the latest items of consumer culture. And there's a tension in between all of that, really. Um, and the other thing that struck me was, you know, a view of life in which family is fraught, but important, right? So, you know, again, the father a cop, the brother a crook, the older brother and the mother have died. The younger brother is all, the younger sister is already on her way to being a crook herself, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you get the sense of the permanency of family, familial relations, but the evanescence of being, yeah. That a lot of people die in this film, don't you think? Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. People die. They get fired. Yeah, they. You know, the teacher getting fired for ideological reasons is, you know, quite something. I mean. I don't quite understand the importance of the teacher. You're not really told what happens. So, so she's going to night school, and there's a teacher who, um, at a at a certain point, reveals that you know, someone someone in the class has made a complaint against him, and you don't you're, you're not told what the complaint is, but the implication is it's something ideological. I mean, this is a point where the so '87 is the year that martial law ended in Taiwan, as I understand it. So, but the film is presumably set while martial law was still in place. So you assume it's ideological reasons why he's then removed from his post. Um, but, but you're not told. I mean, it's it, again, it's, it's an important event that happens off screen. And, and there's this whole, I think what I felt watching it, because it's quite a short film, it's only like an hour and a half. Um, but you, and I don't mean, this sounds like I mean it in a bad way, but it felt like a much longer film because there's so much of, there's so much happens that you're not shown yeah. you kind of feel you must have watched the real epic for all this stuff to have happened but you, but you haven't because all a lot of this stuff is you know events that you just have to fill in yourself so there's a whole story going on with you know with the school and with the fact that the daughter has beaten up another of the girls in the school which again you don't see and you don't know why mm. it's happened um and that there's been some complaint about the teacher and you don't know what that complaint yes. is um, or who made it and why? You assume all these, all these events are interconnected. You don't really know. You're not really. You're not told. Yeah, I was reading um, Tony Raines. It was wonderful. But one of the things that he says is that you know, whereas Hu Shaoshan was unsatisfied with the film and re-edited it, that he himself thought it was very good, and that you could see a real development. Uh, from his early films. Certainly everything I've read since watching the film is that, you know, Hu Shen himself kind of yeah, wasn't positive about the film um, after it was released. Um, and I, I think perhaps felt it was a, a failure in the sense that, you know, he was attempting, I, I guess he was attempting to see, can I, use, can I use my techniques and my ideas to make a very successful commercial film? And the answer was, 
we kind of couldn't because it, it wasn't a commercial success. But I think it's really it's a really interesting film, and it does seem from again from what I've read that it was unavailable, very hard to see until only a few years ago when there was a, a restoration, which is the version we saw, which is on on Mubi. Although by the by the time we get this out, it probably won't be on Mubi anymore <laughs> because they leave at the end of the week. Um, but it's it's also on Blu-ray. The, the, this version and I think it, it's one of those films when it came out in the restored version it was a bit of a revelation because people could see how you know how this prefigured his later work because obviously we're reaching this halfway point really in his in his filmography and it's fascinating to see this film which is kind of an attempt to synthesize that commercial musical romantic comedy from his first three films with these uh, you know coming of age nostalgic moving minimalist films of the subsequent three films and to try and mash those things up and you know when when you view it in that context it's a very interesting film and i would add to that you know those two things plus now being filmed in what is clearly and recognizably hu xiaoshen style like you know i think if you put 30 seconds of uh, one of his films in front of me i'd be able to tell you whether it was his or not now um, though, you know, I must also tell our listeners that we are watching these in chronological order. I think I'd only seen one Hu Shan film before, which is The Assassin. Uh, so I think there's a, a risk. You know how kind of critics or, you know, when you analyze something, it's like you fall in love with the object and, you know, you lose your, your, your <laughs> critical faculties, right? I mean, mm. so do we like this film? as much as we do because it's Hu Shaoshen and we're not familiar with it and, you know, we find all of these things that interest us. You know, or I think if I were to retain some kind of critical distance, I would actually say that this is my least favourite of the Hu Shaoshen films that we've seen. I think I wouldn't recommend this as someone's introduction. You know, this one I have reservations about and really... You know, it is a film that stays with you and it resonates and you could see that it's the film of an artist, right? And, you know, it's not important that I like or not like a film, but I actually did think there was something not quite enough for me. So it's, it's themes of alienation and so on are ones you've seen before. It's true that you rarely get to see it with a woman protagonist, though very interestingly, this is a woman protagonist, but it's not from a female perspective. You never really get a sense of who she is and what she wants, <laughs> right? Yeah, so kind of, she's the, she's, she's the central figure, but she's, she's not the protagonist in a traditional sense. Yeah, the film, the film is about a culture, and I think I suspect about a generation or a youth culture or something. It's not about this particular woman. Yeah. And and you wonder because the grandfather in this, who is the same grandfather from um, Dust in the Wind and who will be in City of Sadness and, and the puppet master is about his life. You kind of wonder if, you know, while making the film, Hu Shashan kind of got more interested in that character. Um, but it, it's rather than focusing on the young people. But, but it, it's, yeah, it, it's... I mean, it's not a perfect film, and it, and it's not a. It, it has more flaws than the other films, but it's still fascinating. Yes, I think, I think. so too. Um, I think we must also say that it's a transitional film. So I think by the time that this film 
came to be made, the Taiwanese new wave was over. Yeah, and it's it's interesting in that a lot of the characteristics that have been attributed to the Taiwanese new wave are actually characteristics that you would only continue to see in the cinema of Hu Xiaoshen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Edward Yang has a completely different style to his, yeah? I mean, you know, uh, the flatness uh, is not something that I associate uh, with uh, uh, Hu Xiaoshen. So, um, I think it's also a film in which he went back, I understand, to the producers of his earlier Cute Girl and so on, yeah, like those commercial kind of films with pop stars. Uh, so, so it's very much a transitional film and, and you can almost feel that it is. The, the other thing that's unusual in it is, is that it's, so because it's set in the present day in, in Taipei and I, as I understand it, it's the, it's the last film he would make set in the present day and set in the city until to, until about 2000. Um, so Millennium Mambo, I think, which also has a female protagonist in the present day in the city. So the rest tended to be either rural or, or set in the past or both. So that's interesting because before we often talked about, you know, the distinction between the rural and the city, right? Because they were often, you know, so much themes in the, in those films, right? I think this is the first one which is set entirely in Taipei, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, uh, I mean, the boys from Feng Kui, they go to a bigger city, but it's not the capital, right? Yeah. No, it's, it, yes, it's, it's a provincial, uh, provincial so, city. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, some are grandpas and so on. I mean, it's back in, in the country for various reasons. Yeah, so I think this is, you know, very interesting in that the setting is urban and it's the capital. And, yeah, the family is a different structure of family that also than you're used to seeing. It's much less traditional and it's much more human. Yeah, the, you know, the grandfather being loving, but being a gambler, you know, the father being the father, but actually being very brutal, you know, uh, and getting shot, you know, the brother being very love, loving, but being a thief. <laughs> right? like, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm just giving two binary characteristics, but you but I mean, within within in the spaces between the binaries, kind of, you see a complexity. Yeah. And it's, you know, it is interesting because, as you say, why, and you're not told, why, why is it, why is it that the father doesn't live with them? You know, why, because surely, surely there's more work in Taipei than there is in the country, right? Because the other films, people go to Taipei to find work. Here, the father has left Taipei. Or why, or why, if, if his job is in, you know, some other town, why is his family not living with him in this other town? Yeah. Uh, like, it's just, it's... Yeah. Well, you understand why they, why they, son isn't because the son's an adult but the other two are kids so yeah so um you so yeah. you you don't know and it kind of does matter that you don't know so i was going to say in a way it doesn't matter that you don't know but actually it does because you know now we're asking questions about it right so it matters to us we would like to know on the other hand it might make for a richer film that we don't know i mean that. You know, we, I, because we might not be asking these questions if we were told. Yeah, so, so there's a dissatisfaction, but it's a dissatisfaction that might actually make for a deeper experience, if, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think that's true, because I think you know, the, the other films, 
you know, particularly dust in the wind, withheld a lot of information, and you you had to piece it together and make your own decisions about what what was going on. And you you know, everyone's going to bring their own kind of life experiences and opinions and beliefs in in, in into that. So, um, in some ways, that that does make it a richer experience because it's, you're not spoon fed. It mattered less to me in that film than in this one. I mean, yeah, I didn't feel it as a lack in that film. Whereas actually, to me, there is something unsatisfactory about this film. Some of the reviews, they say Ozu, which I, which I get, but don't agree, right? As I think the camera's too high uh, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, in comparison to Ozu. And then people talk Bresson, you know, because of the elliptical elements. But let's just say for the sake of argument that they're right. So the combination of Ozu, Bresson, and Taiwanese pop star and youth culture just don't go together. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I don't know. But as I said, and I think it's important, I have now seen it twice, and I saw it both times with great interest. Yeah, uh, I wasn't bored. I, I wasn't exactly, you know, swooning, like I sometimes do with Lubitsch or something, but it's a different type of, of film. Um, you know, but I wasn't bored, and I think that's kind of really important. Yeah, it maintained my, and deepened my interest without quite liking it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to quote, by the way, my favorite thing I read about this film, which is in the the review of the re-release in the New York Times. So this is this is from 2017 uh, by um, Jay Hoberman in the New York Times. Gave it a very positive review of the, of the re-release, and then has a real go at Vincent Camby, who reviewed it for the New York Times in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> so. He's, so he gives his very positive review and he says Vincent Camby who reviewed Daughter of the Nile when it was shown in the 1988 New York Film Festival patronizingly characterized Mr. Who then well into his career as quote an earnest film student but I, I just love the fact that he just took the opportunity to, to stick the boot into his predecessor as New York Times <laughs> film critic <laughs> um, I, I want to read uh, a quote from Tony Raines who I think is really wonderful in Hu Shaoshen. And he says, whose cinema seems to be edging closer and closer to Bresson? His preference for long, fixed-angle takes in which his characters simply go about their business increasingly succeeds in rhyming exterior gesture with unspoken interior thought. Uh, in, a word, in a word, his cinema is becoming more spiritual. Yeah, the thought lingered with me. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of... Yeah. I, I, I don't know what he means by spiritual, but this thing about, like, the external rhyming with, like, you know, the internal. So, you know, the mise-en-scene kind of rhyming with the interiority of characters is something we're thinking about, I think. Yeah. And if you get the Blu-ray of this, which it features, a, I think, a 40-minute interview with Tony Raines talking about the film. So. Oh, wonderful. Uh, well, I have it. <laughs> well, there you go. You can... <laughs> I, I did order it, and it has come. Uh, so uh, I think the only reason why I didn't see it is because you know it was on Mubi, uh, and uh, but I will I will have a look. But yeah, so I mean, it's been great to have this this opportunity, and it's obviously thanks to Mubi for first because if you know the only reason we started doing the the Hu Shen talks is because they were on movie and obviously we, we kind of went off piece a bit and, and, and looked at the others but uh, just to see these four even if you just watch these four films which you have 
I think another six days to do so. So you can watch these four films. You can spend your bank holiday weekend watching these these four films. Uh, they're a really good introduction to his work, and uh, yeah, you can see this good evolution. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for listening. We are thinking aloud about films. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. Yes.